Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first episode of Conservation Chronicles. My name is Jonah Gula. My name is Mariana Rivera-Rodriguez. This is the first episode of what's going to be a wide-ranging podcast centered on wildlife conservation and research. As conservationists, one of our underlying interests is what we call the human-wildlife interface. And every environmental issue we face today has as much to do with wildlife as it does with humans. And the interface is where those issues collide. So before we start um, talking more about the podcast goals and, and what we hope to cover, we just want you to get to know us a little um, so you know what our backgrounds are and where our opinions and our, our views of the topics we're going to be covering are coming from. So Marianne and I met in college um, as undergraduates at Unity College in Maine. Um, we were both studying wildlife biology and we became friends working on the Unity College Bear Study, which was a, a black bear project there. And we developed a, a professional relationship first and then, and then we became friends. And we both graduated together in 2015 with a bachelor's in wildlife biology. And we we've each gone our separate ways with um, our careers in studying different wildlife. So Joan and I like to talk wildlife. We, we talk about wildlife a lot and conservation issues. And it's pretty much all we talk about <laughs> when we're talking. But, well, that's not true. That's not true. But, um, yeah, so, yeah, we're, okay. Uh, we'll tell you a little bit about ourselves individually. Uh, I, as Jonah said, we, we went our separate ways with research. Currently, I am living and working in northern New Mexico. Uh, doing research on the Gunnison's prairie dog, which is one of five species of prairie dog that's only found in the Four Corners region of the U.S. And I'm doing some behavioral research with them and formulating my own research project to do more behavioral research with them, which I will be talking about at some point in the podcast. We'll, we'll each be talking about our research projects. And yeah, my, my fixation right now is with rodents and small mammals, and that's where I would like to stay uh, but we'll see. I might I might also want to branch out um, like Jonah has. Yeah, um, a little bit about myself. Uh, so my background is in mostly large mammals, and that started with the bear study that Mariana and I worked on together. And I've worked on a lot of different projects since then um, on mostly mammals. Um, currently, I'm working in southwestern North Dakota on a greater sage-grouse translocation project. And... This is sort of um, the beginning of my transition to, to bird research. I've become a lot more interested in, in birds recently and have wanted to pursue bird conservation and research projects. Um, and next month, I'm going to be starting graduate school at Texas State University in San Marcos. And my project, um, it's going to be for my master's, is going to be the first ever study on the saddle-billed stork, which is... Um, a large stork species in Africa that has never been studied. And um, my project's not only going to be focusing on the first population demography um, research on the species, but also using that species to understand habitat and population connectivity, particularly wetland connectivity in southern Africa, because it is uh, an ecological issue that's really been overlooked um, in favor of you know, just establishing national parks where establishing national parks where there's large mammals like elephants and lions and things. So it's exciting to to be doing that and I have a lot to go. A lot of ways I have a lot 
to work on to get there. Um, but like Mariana said, we'll be talking more about our projects as we carry on with this podcast. Um, yeah, <clears throat> I feel like my voice is really hoarse. I have sort of a scratchy throat for our first podcast. <laughs> yeah, but, so Jonah, tell, tell everybody what you did this weekend. Yeah, I, um, I do you remember Patricia Skibko from Unity? Yeah, I do. Yeah, so she's working in central North Dakota on a pollinator project right now. And so she and I met up and we went down to the Black Hills in South Dakota, you know, to see Mount Rushmore and to see the Black Hills. But we also climbed Black Elk Peak, which is the tallest mountain east of the Rockies and west of the Pyrenees in Europe. So that was pretty cool. But I guess just sleeping outside made my voice kind of scratchy. Yeah. Since this morning. So. <laughs> That's okay. Well, I didn't do anything this weekend. So. <laughs> But yeah, no, I um, I am on a break from field work currently, um, for the next two, two and a half weeks, I believe, before I go back in late July. So our field season has basically finished up, up here with the Prairie Dogs and John Hoagland, uh, the PI on the project, who is my mentor on Prairie Dogs. He's leaving. In a couple of weeks, he's leaving New Mexico in a couple of weeks, but I'll be staying around to work with uh, a film crew from National Geographic who's who's been up here uh, filming the Prairie Dogs um, in July. But for now, I'm at home, I'm in town, and kind of just resting. <laughs> Bumming it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Podcasting. That's what you're doing for the next Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Podcasting. <clears throat> a little change of pace. But yeah, so that's a little bit about us and what we've what we've been doing lately um and i guess we can talk about our goals for the podcast what we want to accomplish and what we want to talk about yeah yeah let's get into that um so like mariana said uh, <clears throat> this podcast is going to be about wildlife research and conservation and we're going to try to cover a lot we actually already have like <laughs> dozens and dozens of episode ideas so we're yeah. we're not short on material um and so this, the structure of the podcast, we're going to, each episode is going to sort of be in a different category um, or series is, is sort of what we're calling it. You know, so sometimes we're going to be just having a chat, a discussion um, about some topic and, and our opinions about it. Um, actually, every episode will definitely have our opinions in it. <laughs> some of them are very <laughs> yes. strong, but um, that's why we wanted to give you a background about ourselves so you, so you know where we're coming from because we're very... Um, scientific and conservation minded and me personally I'm I'm very logical minded and so I approach a lot of these topics we're going to be talking about from that standpoint and so that's what influences a lot of my strong opinions yeah and I kind of come from the other end where while I appreciate the importance of logic especially in science and in our research aside from that sort of on principle I think more I think a little bit less logically about certain issues I guess a little bit more emotionally but that's why we're such a good foil uh, because while Jonah's talking about logic I might say you know I might play devil's advocate on certain issues or I might even disagree entirely on certain issues and um, we'll be able to cover different viewpoints of of really important conservation topics yeah, and I think what you said, you know, we don't always agree on things. 
as our listeners, we don't expect you to agree with everything we say. Um, you know, we're trying to share information and share our view points with, with you and to maybe help you especially learn things, but maybe, you know, change the way you think about something um, because maybe you know a little bit about a certain topic, but, you know, we'll give you more background than, so you can make a decision about a certain topic a little more informed. Um, so you don't necessarily have to agree with us and, and everything that we're saying, we're not out to get people or to offend people or whatever. Um, we're just here to, you know, share information with you and, and share our opinions about things. Yep, exactly. And our, our stance is always um, conservation minded, as Jonah said, you know, we're, we're not going to, um, well, our, our stance on conservation issues, they're not political, they're not um, anything like that. They're just based on the best interests of the ecosystem, the wildlife habitats. So, and we, we know a lot about wildlife, obviously, that's what we're studying, but we're still wildlife students as well. So we'll also be learning um, things along the way, um, along with you. So it'll be interesting. Yeah, um, so some other categories or series that we're going to be covering are just generally conservation topics, um, topics in research, you know, whether it's talking about our research or scientific ethics or just things related to researching wildlife. Um, we're also going to cover issues related to wildlife, which in our day and age there are a lot, so that's going to... Um, make up a, a lot of our episodes. Um, we'll also be covering current affairs, um, or current news, which is sort of what we want to get into in the, the next part of this, this episode. Um, we might be responding to certain um, journal articles or, or certain wildlife news. Um, we want to do an endangered species series, so you know a whole episode that's about a particular endangered species that maybe you haven't heard about or maybe you don't know a lot about or we don't know a lot about and we want to learn more about and share with you. Or we'll you know, talk about some people in history that have really influenced wildlife conservation and talk about how they influenced the way we do things in the wildlife profession nowadays. And then we'll have special episodes, um, you know, talking about our field work or maybe, you know, listener mail and, and things like that. Um, so we're going to try to keep it diverse, and we hope that this podcast can cover a wide range of topics related to wildlife. So you're getting it all in one place. So do you want to go ahead and move on to our topic of the day? Yes, let's discuss this yes. article. So the article, which we will post in the episode notes, is from the New York Times, and it's called The Ornithologist the Internet Called a Murderer. So pretty interesting title, <laughs> and it is, in fact, a really interesting story. It begins with Dr. Christopher Filardi. He was a biologist with the American Museum of Natural History in New York. And in 2015, he and a team of researchers were studying the ecosystems of the Solomon Islands, specifically the island of Guadalcanal. Uh, these are islands in the South Pacific. They're near Papua New Guinea, um, northeast of Australia. And while well, on the island, uh, as they were researching the ecosystems, Dr. Filardi also had a particular interest in a species of bird called the mustache kingfisher. 
Yeah, so the mustache kingfisher is a forest kingfisher species and living in the forests of um, the Solomon Islands, it's very difficult to observe them just because the forests are so dense. And there's only been three females that have ever been, I'm not sure if it was um, photographed or collected, uh, but there's only, in the scientific community, there's only records of observations of three females in the wild of this species. And a male mustache kingfisher has never been recorded. So obviously people on that live on that island have seen them before, so it's not like no one's ever seen this species before, but the male of the species has never been photographed, never been described, no one's ever caught one. And so when Dr. Filardi was doing bird surveys with his team, when he heard the call of the mustache kingfisher, he was naturally really excited because no one's ever seen a male before. So a couple days later, um, they actually caught a male in one of their mist nets. And this was the first time that a scientist has ever held a male of this species, which is super excited, especially in the year 2015, when we think we know everything um, about the environment. And um, so anyways, since he works for the museum, he euthanized the animal for the museum's collection since it's the only one, only male of the species that's ever been in a scientist's hand. Um, so it wasn't just some random collection. It was for a, a scientific, it had a scientific purpose so that that could go into the museum's collection and that that could be there for a lot of purposes. But it wasn't like he was killing it for for no reason. And he also wasn't killing it irresponsibly because he knew based on their um, surveys that they'd done, b based on call surveys, that just that single island had something like 4,000 of this kingfisher species, which is a lot for, which is a large population for a large island bird like that. So there was nothing spiteful or, or evil about this kingfisher being euthanized for the museum's collection. Yeah, they were thriving on the island. They were doing really well. And as Jonah said, this is this is not a species that's not known to the islanders and not known to the to Guadalcanal, but it is basically the collection is new to what we might call Western science. So it was really important to collect the specimen for the museum. And there are a lot of benefits to having specimens in museums. Now these are not specimens up for display. They're kept very carefully in storage um, for several reasons. As for this particular kingfisher, what we got from this collection was DNA, we got RNA, we got the, the body itself, the skeleton, the morphology, and also tissues in cryogenic storage. And all of this information all and the tissues and the specimen will probably outlive us and may even one day outlive the species itself. As we said, it is thriving uh, but it is an island species, and island species are always very vulnerable to um, to mass extirpation or mass death, um, whether it's from uh, an act of God, as they call it, like a hurricane, or whether it's from human pressures. And we will get to uh, the result of this collection in terms of the human impact on the kingfisher as well as its habitat. But the collection itself, it, it, it was very important. And 
in the New York Times article, they list a couple of examples of some of the more well-known positive consequences of having collections, for example, egg specimens uh, that were kept in museum and tested, uh, revealed the effects that DDT, we all know the chemical DDT was the insecticide, or pest, it was an insecticide, um, I think. Um, <laughs> it was some sort of pesticide, I think it was an insecticide. So we all, we all know the effects that DDT had on bird eggs and banning DDT eventually um, helped the bald eagle and other species of birds in the United States uh, to rebound from near extinction. And we would not have had those, those results or that finding without the testing of museum egg specimens. Um, so that's, that's one of several examples taken straight from the New York Times article. Very interesting read. Uh, but we wanted, to, we wanted to emphasize the importance of the collection of the specimen before we got into what happened next uh, to Dr. Filardi. Yeah, and I think it's also worth noting before we get into Dr. Filardi's story that, you know, when people that work for museums collect specimens, it's not like they're just doing it willy-nilly. Um, you know, there's a strict code of ethics and there's a, an animal care and use committee that, that regulates what these people do in the field. Um, so it's, it's not like their actions are going unchecked or they're, they're making these decisions on their own. And so Dr. Filardi wasn't just doing this for, for no reason. It had a purpose like we just talked about. Um, so back to, back to the story there in um, 2015. So, you know, they get photos of this male kingfisher and then they collect, they euthanize it to have a specimen. And then Dr. Filardi sends the photo and sends news of this discovery, really, back to the Natural History Museum in New York. And naturally, the museum, you know, releases a press release because it's a very exciting piece of news to share. And in the meantime, Dr. Filardi is still on the island, off the grid, um, doing bird surveys and... He doesn't even know what's going on at home back in the States when there was just this outcry from the public in response to this press release. And, of course, as people do nowadays, this outcry was mostly through social media. And it's just crazy um, what people will say and do on the Internet. You know, he received death threats. People were signing petitions saying that he should be fired. I think something like 4,000, the article said four, almost 4,000 people signed a petition saying that he doesn't deserve to breathe another breath, which is just <laughs> insane, <laughs> preposterous. Um, and so people are going crazy. Um, and he doesn't even know that this is all going on. So I think also people were trying to hack into his Facebook account, which I don't understand the purpose of that. Then people started trying to hack into his children's Facebook account. His family was receiving death threats in the middle of the night. Just these, this, this horrible stuff that was happening while he isn't even back in the United States. And, you know, the, the article from New York Times says that when he came back to the States, he descended from the mountaintop into an inferno of hate, which was a pretty good description of Yep. what he was about to experience. Yeah, I love that sentence because it really, I mean, it sounds exaggerative, but it, 
the the response from the outcry itself was exaggerative so it was it was unexpected it was immediate it was highly emotional um and certainly dr filardi and his team were not <laughs> were not expecting it so dr filardi he comes home and he sees all this hate being thrown at him and his his colleagues um specifically him because he personally took the photographs and the collection of the kingfisher uh he actually um in response to the outcry he actually wrote a follow-up article for audubon and we'll also include the link to that um in the episode notes and he he felt the need to to write this article to explain why he collected the bird how it was collected um he detailed the exhaustive population assessment they did which jonah referenced earlier um, showing that the birds were thriving on the island and he spoke of the immediate result of the expedition a big part of which was taking the male specimen on the island and i will go ahead and quote him here from his article he says upon return from the mountains the survey team including chiefs and key representatives of the luna sutahuri people presented findings to government and other local leaders among many novel scientific findings we presented the collection of a single male mustache kingfisher and our encounters with with its still thriving world. For the first time in my decades of work in the region, all present, including relevant government ministries, the prime minister's office, local leaders, and the Aluna Sutuhuri tribe, formally agreed that this area should advance toward national recognition under the recently passed Protected Areas Act, which is huge. And for, for that sort of unanimous agreement, that unanimous immediate agreement, like that's an extremely rare, like, if unknown outcome of of this kind of expedition or, or any research like that you know a lot of these things take a really long time and you have to get everyone on board and um, I can't help but imagine you know like I said these people have seen this bird before but they've never held this bird in their hands before and so I can't help but imagine the impact that you know some of these key leaders and the, and the chiefs holding that male mustache kingfisher in their hand and i guess we should say that you should look up a photo of this bird because it's um it's stunning with this electric blue and this rust color and it's just a beautiful bird and so for them to be holding that in their hands and seeing that this is what they'll be protecting this is an example of one of the species that they'll be protecting if they create a protected area you know i we won't know what would have happened if they didn't take that specimen but i imagine that that had a huge impact on their decisions to immediately agree to protect that area yeah it had to have had a, an impact and that's a good point because the vitriol and hate that resulted against dr filardi as we mentioned before it was a very emotional response and often there's a, a misperception that scientists are not emotional and that's because of course we try to leave emotion out of our out of the interpretation of, of the results from our research basically and out of our conservation decisions however that being said we are emotional creatures we're not robots and this was an emotional accomplishment for dr filardi and his research team and it was also an emotional accomplishment for the local people of guadalcanal uh, for the tribal leaders and for the local government and 
absolutely, I'm sure seeing that specimen up close and being able to, 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 to touch it and to make it real, not just um, an interesting song in the forest, to really touch it was probably also an emotional experience. And it, it does affect policy when you allow policymakers to become intimate with what you're trying to protect. So I think it was a sacrifice to take the male kingfisher, but it was it was well worth it, and it was much needed. It it really was much needed. Yeah, and so you know, after he comes home and he wrote that article for Audubon, um, it's not like the hate stopped um, mm-hmm. because that's just how people are. And so basically, he was he was forced to leave his position at the museum, which is really tragic, especially because he said that he grew up going to that museum since he was young and he loved that museum and he's so passionate about it. And his actual decision to leave was because he felt he was basically not doing the museum any favors by staying there because funders were threatening to pull their donations if he didn't leave and things like that. And so because he loved the museum so much, he decided to to leave it so that he wouldn't continue to hurt its reputation which is, you know, that I think that just demonstrates how committed he was to, to his work and to the work that that museum does. However, it's, it's really sad how he was basically bullied out of this position that it seemed he had, you know, he had wanted since he was, he was young. And I think in the article, um, he said somewhere how he, he felt he failed as an ambassador for the natural sciences. And that's no scientist, no biologist, no conservationist wants to say that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's what I don't really understand about this outcry because if people really understood where professionals in our field are coming from, you know, we're we're not in this position just because it's, you know, a job that we got. We've had to work for this work to get into this career and we're in this career because we care about the animals and we we want to conserve them and protect them and so why someone would think that he didn't feel that way I I don't understand um, because it's not like he wants this animal to go extinct yeah and it's a shame that they would push him that that they basically pushed him underground because the communication with the public that he had um, to offer was was really critical and really important. Um, he was a, he was a great spokesman for what he did and for the wildlife and habitats he was trying to protect. But all the the harassment and the death threats they they pushed him on the ground, and that's a real shame because as scientists we want to communicate with the public and we want to understand them and we want them to understand us. So it's it's difficult for us to do so when the public isn't willing to listen. Yeah, and I think somewhere in this article, it, it talked about how after this, um, after these events, a lot of museums sort of agreed to limit the press releases that they put out about things like, about discoveries like this, because it um, inf- obviously very strongly influences how people view them. And so... Like you said, we want to be able to communicate with the public, but because of the way the public res- responded to this um, specimen collection, 
now a lot of these museums don't have that open line of communication with the public anymore because not because they're trying to hide something but because they recognize that sharing all of their work may actually cause more harm and you know I, this article also talked about um the irony of how these people had this outcry about this one individual and you know as biologists and conservationists we we think about the the population you know that's what we're we're working for is to make sure that populations of animals persist that's not to say that we don't care about individual animals um you know in our in our research we obviously get attached to to individual animals um and individual animals are what's providing us information that reflects on the entire population so the individual animals are important but our work is trying to understand and and focus on a population in the meantime these people are freaking out about this one individual animal yet probably while they're typing up these hate rants on Facebook they have some outdoor cat that's killing birds um outside which is a significant issue that if they truly well that's not fair to say but if they really understood um the issue one of the major issues um of wildlife conservation which is feral cats they they wouldn't be wasting their time on this one individual bird that was taken i mean something like 600 to 900 million birds um slam into our buildings every day and 4 billion birds are killed by house cats annually and yet these issues are being overlooked so people could you know have this hate rant on Facebook and so it's just like this almost ironic hypocrisy that I think as conservationists and biologists that we want to address and that we want to um you know enlighten people on and that's one thing that we want to do with this podcast is you know make people aware of these these real issues instead of this this sort of petty thing that personally and professionally affects people in negative ways if you want to be upset about the taking of this male mustache kingfisher uh, i would hope that you would be equally upset about the taking of of every songbird that a house cat takes on a daily basis um when they're let outside into the wild there are issues you know our our principles have consequences and our narrative has consequences and i understand getting upset over the killing of an animal nobody did this lightly this was not as we said before this was not done lightly um this was done with the health of the mustache kingfisher population in mind and you can be upset you can be sad for the kingfisher if you'd like but just be cognizant of the fact that the narrative that you put out there and the rhetoric that you put out there especially on such a wide spanning and ubiquitous platform like online social media has consequences and it's important to think of that before you start contributing to a rhetoric out of an emotional response just take a moment to think about your emotional response and take a moment to think about the consequences of that and and read about the entire situation if if more people had done that if they had if more people had read about the situation and if more people had 
considered Dr. Ferlardi's words in his response on Audubon, I think it, I think we would have had the opportunity for a meaningful conversation about conservation methods, about muse, museum collection methods and curation, and about Guadalcanal, about the Solomon Islands, and about the wildlife and the habitats there, and also about the local conservation efforts there. That really got overshadowed in this entire controversy, uh, is are the local efforts that are going into protecting these wild spaces and these wild animals. I mean, you've got everybody on the island of Guadalcanal cooperating, um, the tribal leaders, the local government, and they all want to see this species protected. And they're the ones that Dr. Filardi and his research team are working with. And they appreciate his work and they're happy to have him. And I think we should consider that um, they're, the, they're the ones who live with these animals and, and they're the ones who are on the ground protecting the protecting the protecting the wildlife and habitats. So that really got overshadowed in this controversy. And I think that's a shame. I, I didn't see a single comment that even mentioned the, the Aluna Satuhuri tribe or uh, the local efforts going on in, on Guadalcanal. Yeah. I guess we should also say that, um, you know, even though Dr. Filardi left the museum he has still continued his work um, in the Solomon Islands, um, almost sort of underground with the museum and with um, another conservation organization. So he's still he's still doing his work just in, in a different capacity. And the reason that we're you know the, this story was almost three years ago now, but the reason we're talking about it now is because only just last month was this New York Times article published because. Dr. Filardi's been off the radar, and you know this, the article starts off with the authors trying to contact him. You know, all his emails bounced back, all his phone numbers didn't work, and it's because he had to go underground um, to avoid, you know, the bullying of people and um, all the threats and things. So, you know, at the time of this article last month, he was preparing to go back to the Solomon Islands. So, you know, despite all that's happened, he's still doing the work over there. And I think that also demonstrates his commitment to the work that he has been doing and that he was doing at the time of, of this whole debacle. So. Agreed. He could have totally abandoned the work for fear of more vitriol or, or for, for fear of his life because there was a point where he did fear for his life and his family's safety. But he's so committed to this conservation initiative that he's, he's going to continue the work, which I think is... Yeah, I agree. That's that's phenomenal, and, and I, I really respect that, and I respect him for that. You know, we chose this article sort of as an introduction to the kind of um, issues that we're going to be discussing in this podcast. Like Mariana said, we, we want to really focus on the human-wildlife interface, and I think that this whole series of events is a, is a perfect way to start off um, not only to you know, help you understand our perspective, but to help you understand what people in our field are doing. And you know, like I already said, we're here for the wildlife. We want to help the wildlife. Um, and that's the perspective of every wildlife researcher. 
And so I think this article really, really highlighted that. Um, and it was a good way to introduce you to just the, the kind of things we're going to be talking about. Yeah, and uh, as I mentioned before, basically every wildlife issue is also a human issue and vice versa. Um, we are intrinsically linked and, and every action we take affects wildlife and their habitats and the ecosystems they live in. And every action we take also affects each other. Um, so there are a lot of issues concerning wildlife that um, are also environmental justice issues for people and for communities. And so we're, we'll, be, we'll be talking a lot about that too. So yes, our main focus is, is the wildlife. That's what we're passionate about. That, that's our vocation. It's what we wanna do for our entire lives. Um, we'll work on wildlife conservation until we just physically can't anymore. <laughs> Basically, there's no retirement for a wildlife conservationist. Um, you just work until you can't. So that's our focus. But of course, we respect that interface. And that's what we want to shed light on um, in this podcast. So hopefully we will do so successfully. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So that's it for this episode. Um, yep. If you, so, no, go ahead. oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, uh, what are you doing from now until the next podcast? <laughs> well, tomorrow I am doing some aerial telemetry, um, do that twice a week to locate the grouse that we've translocated. Also monitoring some translocated broods. So yeah, just the field work that I normally do. Field season's slowly starting to wrap up as we get later into the summer. So just working on a few broods that are still surviving. Um, yeah, how about you? Good to hear. The broods are still surviving. Um, <laughs> a couple. <laughs> a couple, yeah. <laughs> well, relocation is a difficult, um, difficult yeah. endeavor. So. And everything eats grouse. So yeah, that's right. So yeah. So as for me, um, late summer, mid to late summer is a time when when a lot of field projects um, are are closing up. And same thing with the prairie dogs here. And this week, I'm going to help John wrap up his final field season after 45 years of, of prairie dog research. Oh my gosh, I didn't know it was the final. I thought, oh my gosh, is, I did yep. not know that. <laughs> this was his final That's field season. Shocking. I know. Wow. It's um, he he held he held on with field work for as long as he could. Um, but like I said moments ago, this you know he's. He's nearing 70 now and Oh wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, and he's I mean he's still full of energy and passion, but he's um he's ready to hunker down and write his magnum opus on on all the prairie dog res uh, species that he's researched, um the black-tailed, white-tailed Utah and Gunnisons, um which are four of the five uh, species of prairie dog in North America. The fifth species being the Mexican prairie dog, uh which is not exactly in an accessible location for for researchers um, yeah, from the I U.S. at the moment. Um, but anyway, yeah, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But yeah, I'm going to help John to wrap up his final field season. He's All of his equipment that he's had for the last 45 years is, is going to um, a couple of places. One is a camp out of Alabama, I think. He's giving, he's giving our deer blinds, which we used to do our observational work, uh, to a camp and he's giving all of his traps and other equipment to the University of New Mexico, um, to UNM. So, and this is like a huge, this will be a huge windfall. These are tomahawk 
live traps, which are not cheap anymore. When he got them, like back in 1974, <laughs> they, they yeah. were affordable. But they're those not things, affordable anymore. Man, just like imagine the number of prairie dogs that those traps have trapped. Oh my goodness, the history behind those traps. Because he, he probably has that piece of data somewhere. Oh, he does. Oh, um, oh, absolutely. He has every single piece of data somewhere in his office, um, in piles and piles. But yeah, these traps. He's 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 been very careful about maintaining these traps, and he doesn't throw anything away. So yeah, these traps have seen a lot of history, and a lot of important work that's been done over the last forty-five years. We have a lot to thank John Hoagland for when it comes to prairie dogs, but. Yeah, so that's what I'll be doing this week. I'll also be attempting to enter our second research site, which is in national park land. And currently the national park is closed up here because of wildfire concerns. Um, So our wildfire danger is at extreme right now. So stage three restrictions. And I have to get an escort onto the meadow that I want to access um, to monitor our post-plague population, which I will also be talking about more um, later in the podcast. But that's also something I'm going to attempt to do this week. The parks are closed because we have a really high fire danger, and over Memorial Day weekend, um, some time ago, a lot of people left their campfires abandoned, and the park just decided this is this is too much of a risk, so we're just going to close it entirely. Um, and that affected a lot of researchers because up here in the caldera, there is a lot of scientific research going on up there. So, but anyway, so yeah, that's, <laughs> that's my long winded explanation of what I plan to do this week. Uh, <laughs> is there, is there a fire currently there? Not currently. Or is it just a threat? Okay. Just a threat uh, currently. Yeah. The last fire was a few weeks ago and it was contained pretty quickly. Um, and there, there are spot fires here and there, but they, they contain them very quickly. They're really good at doing that up here. So currently it's just the threat. Um, of a fire until the monsoon the monsoon season starts, which is any day now. Um, we have a monsoon ah, we have a monsoon season here in northern New Mexico, so uh, we're just waiting for that so that we can feel safe um, again. Yeah, there was just a fire while I was in the Black Hills. I got a, a text from my mom that there was a fire right on her road. Uh, oh my gosh, I heard about the San Diego County fire and I was like, oh, I should ask Jonah about that. Yeah, no, it was, it's right on the road that I, you know, I grew up um, on and she was working and she couldn't get away from work just because what her job is. And I'm like out in the wilderness and I just happened to get this text message and my brother is working and I'm like, cause I have some things that I keep in storage in her garage um, that I don't want to lug around when I'm traveling between jobs. And I was like, get this box and get this box if you're going to evacuate. <laughs> and I mean, I, it was really close to obviously my mom's house and a lot of family friends. And But I, the wind blew the other direction and um, it burned. I forget how many acres, but I think it's out now. But it was pretty close. Um, that's just how it is these days, though. Yes, the Southwest is on fire. It has been all summer, basically. So, and yeah, yeah. At, at some point we will talk climate change, uh, but not today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not today. We could have a whole podcast about that. Yes, we could. Anyways, um, so that's it for our first episode. Um, we hope you'll join us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our Facebook page. We're at uh, Conservation Chronicles. You can subscribe to our podcast, and you can check out our website, and 
you can find the information to contact us there if you have any questions or comments or want to just reach out to us. So, yeah. Yeah, let us know what you think, and thanks for listening.